Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. We all know the saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. As the son of a dentist and nephew of a neighborhood doctor, it's no surprise then that Dr. High Muss ended up in a medical profession nor that his empathetic style of care seems to emanate directly from his upbringing as well. What might have been unexpected, however, was his area of focus. Unexpected because when Dr. Musk began, the specialty of focusing on cancer among older patients was in its infancy. As you'll hear, thanks to Dr. Musk and others, much has been learned about geriatric oncology, geriatric breast cancer, and much, much more remains. Just one example. While often curative, chemotherapy also has unwanted side effects that endure after treatment has ended, including biological aging. Dr. Muss and colleagues are conducting studies to understand the effects of chemotherapy on aging of the immune system and identifying strategies to prevent or attenuate these unwanted side effects and improve the patient's quality of life. More on Dr. Muss. He's a professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and director of the Geriatric Oncology Program at the UNC Leinberger Comprehensive Cancer Center Program. Dr. Muss has devoted his career to breast cancer research with major interests in treatment of both early and late stages, treatment outcomes, and optimizing care for older women with breast cancer. He also has a major interest in biomarkers of aging, and how they might serve as surrogate markers for help in predicting outcomes including toxicity and survival. Dr. Muss is committed to working with trainees and mentoring them on research projects focused on breast cancer, geriatric oncology, and specifically outcomes research and translational studies concentrating on interventions to maintain and improve function in older adults treated with cancer. Before my conversation with Dr. Muss, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Hai Moss. Dr. Moss, thank you for joining. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. It's great to be here. I want to get into, of course, your science and approach to care, but in researching you, I've got to say it became obvious where I had to start. What does it mean to be a real Brooklyn boy? And while they can take the boy out of Brooklyn, you're, uh, I assume, in North Carolina right now where you work. Doctor, can they ever take the Brooklyn out of the boy? Never, never. So uh, I've lived in North Carolina a long time. But the doctors I work with and refer to, I've heard myself being referred to as the little Yankee, uh, the guy with the <laughs> New York accent that'll take care of you. So it never leaves. And I'm very proud of it. I, I would imagine that you are. Very yeah. What, proud of it. Why would they ever want to take the Brooklyn out of the boy? Well, there are people, you know, <laughs> that try to move up in life and don't want to uh, show their roots. I think more people like me, we're very proud of where we grew up. One of the True. great cities of the world before they built the Brooklyn Bridge. So very proud of it. Yeah. And the second <laughs> item that, that struck me, um, you may not read your own reviews online. And I hope you don't mind, but I did. And mm. here's just a little bit of what your patients say. 
Dr. Moss is off the charts wonderful, four exclamation marks. Very empathetic and willing to listen. Conveys his compassion for situations in an effective manner. Dr. Muss is outstanding and kind and professional. I appreciate Dr. Muss's warm and kind demeanor so much. He is an exceptional physician. I am grateful he was in charge of my care. He is an amazing man. Now, first, just for the record, you don't fill those out yourself, correct? I don't. I don't think my mother. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I understand the desire that she would have to do so, but those obviously are powerful and meaningful. Why are empathy and compassion seemingly as much a part of your approach as is scientific or medical expertise? Well, first, I'm very um, honored and flattered by the comments. They're very lovely. You know, probably my upbringing, my parents were wonderful people. They welcomed everybody. My father was the neighborhood dentist. My uncle was the neighborhood GP. My mother lived in the same neighborhood, and I I guess she was the therapist to half the neighborhood people when they had issues. But they were wonderful, caring people, and I thought their style and how they lived their lives was important. And, you know, there are so many uh, patients we have that are so sick, so afraid, you know, most of us know the medicine, we know the statistics of the treatments, et cetera, but trying to get a patient comfortable, making them, getting to know them. You know, I often tell our residents, if you don't know whether this patient has a dog, you're not doing your job. And in this frenetic age, Mm. I think getting to know people and being kind makes you more effective. They're more likely to take your advice, to trust you, so I try to do that and give a little bit of me at the time. I'm not one of these, uh, my heart's on my sleeve. I'm a very easy read, but it kind of works for me. It's not for everybody. And I think that resonates with some patients who are petrified of their diagnosis and want more than the treatment plan. Petrified is surely the right word for so many. And Absolutely. helping helping them manage that component of their care um, listening to you is perhaps as much uh, as the science in terms of um, importance, or certainly certainly close. You may know that you've been called a triple threat, excelling in research, education, and the clinic. So let's talk about the research, if we could. I wanted to first understand geriatric oncology. Has that always been your focus, and what drew you to it? So it hasn't always been my focus. I finished my fellowship a long time ago, 1974. And when I finished fellowship and went into academic oncology, which I've been in all my life and which has been just a great career choice for myself, no regrets, we treated all cancer. You know, there weren't specialists in leukemia and lymphoma. The tools were so marginal. It took a long time to make oncology a specialty. I took the second set of boards. Mm. And that was because to become a medical specialty, you had to prove you could do things for patients, not just identify a disease. So I was in early, but as things evolved and treatment got better, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, all the modalities got better, prevention, early diagnosis, you had to specialize to to really be an academician. That's still true, more and more true today. And it's actually happening in the practice situation in the community where docs are taking little niches. So 
I did all types of cancer over the years, got into breast cancer, and then had the great experience of working with one of probably the planet's great geriatricians, a guy named Bill Hazard, who's emeritus professor at Wake Forest, who wrote the first textbook on geriatrics Mm. and who tried to proselytize all, get us interested in geriatrics. So a long story, but I wrote a paper with one of our residents, Kathy Christman at that time. She's a practicing oncologist on older people treated with metastatic breast cancer. And at that time, Mm. many clinical trials excluded older people. They were written right into the criteria, but we did not. I had an incredible boss, Charlie Spee said, now you can't do that. That's ageism. And this is 30, 40 years ago. Now it's a popular term. Then no one knew what ageism was, but he did. And so we included it and we showed that the older people derived similar benefit. They didn't have profoundly different toxicity and they had the same response rates and survival. So we published that in JAMA. And all of a sudden I had friends calling me about their mothers, grandmothers, patients who were older. And I realized I didn't really know a lot about them. I wrote this paper, but I didn't know a lot about caring for older people. And I got interested. I learned a lot. I had the opportunity of working with people nationally like Harvey Cohen at Duke. We chaired a major committee and slowly morphed into geriatrics, especially when I learned the demographics, right? So in the elevator, people say, how come you're interested in that high? And I'll say, what's the average age of cancer in the United States? You know, when they watch TV and they see Brian's song and they'll say 45. No, it's 67. So as we get older, as we an aging population, as we get older, your chances of getting cancer rise dramatically with age. And as we get an older population, there are more and more of these patients. And the challenge is they frequently come to your clinic with more than cancer. Now, they're the 75-year-old tennis players, and there are the 75-year-old people who are quite ill, not from their cancer frequently, Mm. but from diabetes, heart disease, strokes. And the challenge is to sort out these people, identify the problems of the patient, and take care of the cancer as well as the patient. And sometimes the cancer although the word is profoundly intimidating, is really not the patient's problem. They can't walk down the street without falling. So I've slowly gotten interested in this. And as you may be aware, Medicare is a great service, but caring for older people in the United States is extremely difficult. We're short of physicians. We're short of geriatricians, et cetera. So we've become interested in this field Uh, in trying to improve cancer care in older patients. And it's a great challenge. And working with older people is a great reward. And I know from reading just a little bit about you, I I believe that among your questions that you would ask, will ask a patient is, can you walk to the end of the street? Or a, a lot of questions and investigation around mobility and frailty, I think, is also... Sure. I mean, when when you take care of a patient today, you know, we're all specialists and we all have the patient's records and know about the cancer. And so my style is with older people and with all patients is my first question is after I introduce myself and tell people what I do for a living is to say, tell me about yourself. Mm. I tell them, I know about your cancer. Tell me about yourself. What do you like to do? Are you working? Are you retired? you know, uh, get to know people. 
because that tells you a lot about people. I do a little what they call a geriatric assessment, which can be very formal, but it's essentially knowing in an older person, can they care for themselves? Do they pay the bills? Are they a caregiver for their husband or wife or are someone caring for them? Can they move the chair across the room? Do they have friends and social support? Are they eating enough? Most older people losing weight are not doing it because their cancer is spread. They're doing it because they've lost the joy of eating and don't have the same appetite. And so all these things come into caring for the older patient. And frequently they trump the issues related to the cancer. And what's important about it is many of these issues are fixable. So in addition to your treating their breast cancer, which may have an excellent prognosis, you may send them to physical therapy so they don't have a fall and break their hip and start on a very disastrous road. So geriatric oncology maybe is the consummate form of holistic medicine Hmm. in that we've really got to know that whole patient because there's vast differences in health status, income, social support in older people. So you just can't say she's 75 and have an image in your mind, which most people do of maybe someone older, because they can be vastly different patients depending on their function, et cetera. So I think I know what aging is, but what is molecular aging? Yeah. So one of the the mysteries of biology of life is why do we age? Why is people hair going gray? Every organ system in our body, including yourself, I hate to tell you this. Only half as much as I hate to hear. 30 30 or 40 is declining. We're losing little air sacs in our lungs. Our kidneys can't filter as much blood. Our liver isn't efficient at building proteins. Our heart doesn't pump quite as strongly. We're losing brain cells. Nothing to be afraid of. We have a lot of reserve, but we slowly lose this. So why does this happen? And one of the things is, you know, in our environment, even oxygen causes little damage to a lot of the cells in our body, subtle damage that accumulates. And for instance, take a liver cell. So Over the years, the liver cell may be damaged by oxidation, by chemicals coming into it. And what the cell does is it it slowly changes to a cell that can't divide and replenish itself, but it doesn't die. It's what we call senescent, a terrible term because we call some old people senescent. I hate it. (laughs) But they can't divide, but they don't die. And they actually make dangerous little chemicals, inflammatory and other proteins that actually can predispose people to cancer. Mm. And that may be why cancer is more common as we get older, because we accumulate all these inflammatory and other factors that, you know, float through our circulation all through our body and increase our risk for virtually any type of cancer increases with age from leukemia, breast cancer, colon cancer, uh, et cetera. So uh, biologic aging is this process where cells go from vigorous cells that can divide and replenish organ systems to cells that don't divide well, but are not dying and make actually bad things for us. Mm. And that varies too. But the interest is that may help us predict side effects of drugs, may help us predict in the future who's likely to be uh, very robust and who's likely to be frail. Now, we don't know all of this yet, but it's a hot area, and there's more and more wonderful scientists in the laboratory, social science, 
medical care involved in trying to figure out this process. So biologic aging is really real. It's why we change as humans, but the major causes, can we reverse it? Billion dollar business looking for drugs to keep us young, right? Fountain of yes. youth, right? Hence Florida, right? Ponce de Leon, right? <laughs> so um, we, we're still looking and uh, there's a lot of wonderful laboratory work here um, to and I would say the focus of people like me is not to make people immortal. That's not going to happen. That might be a curse. But to live the best life you can for as long as possible in the best health. Because if everybody lived to 85, it would be much different if uh, people lived to 85 with a great life between 65 and 85 and mm-hmm. vigorous and could do things or sitting you know, in a wheelchair watching television all day and not being able to take advantage of life. So the endpoint might be the same, but the quality of life would be vastly different. So that's things we're very, very interested in seeing if we can affect. And on the oncology front, how does chemotherapy induce the biological aging that you were just discussing? How does that science work? The best example, you know, how do we know that? What's the best proof? It's children. So childhood cancer in this country is one of the great achievements of oncology, of cancer care, because Mm -hmm. we're curing so many children with cancer, leukemias that took the lives of young children in weeks to months are now cured. But there's a price that many of these young adolescents and children pay, and that is by the time they're 35, they actually have the disease spectrum of 65-year-old adults. And it's not because the cancer has grown back. It's because they have heart disease. Mm. They have developed second cancers different than the first. And so the mortality rates go up and they have a lot of serious illness and they get frail. And I've worked with this with one of my colleagues. Um, That's the best evidence. And there's also things like um, evidence in when we've given women chemotherapy and measuring the oxygen they can take out of their lungs, like Lance Armstrong took all that oxygen out. He was a great biker. And we've shown that if you give women chemotherapy, that if you have a 265 year old woman and one had chemotherapy and one didn't, the 65 year old woman will have the oxygen extraction of really a 75 year old woman. She's aged Hmm. 10 years. And the only explanations we have are the chemotherapy. And then there's been our work, which couldn't have been done without BCRF to look at another marker of aging, a uh, gene called P16. Yes. I wanted to ask you about the P16 marker. Yes. That as we age goes up, the expression of this gene goes up. And what it does is it codes for a little chemical that stops our cells from dividing. These changes in the gene you see are responsible for the organ declines in every organ of the body, whether it's kidney or lungs. It's probably true from the limited data we have in humans. So we measure this gene whose little protein, little chemical goes up dramatically as we age, makes our cells less able to divide. And we're measuring them in the immune system. One of the uh, questions um, that we talked about earlier before this was, do we know the implications of that? We, We really don't. You know, it takes years to see these changes. You treat children with leukemia at age 5, 10, 15, you don't see the changes till they're 15, 20, 30. We're impatient populations, so we don't know. But we're very concerned that these changes may result in that 55-year-old woman 
having much more serious illness, comorbidity, diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, when they're in their 70s, than a similar woman her age would have who didn't have chemotherapy for breast cancer. And we've shown it in other cancers too. So we're very excited about using that as a predictor of side effects and seeing if we can accurately predict certain side effects could we do interventions ahead of time to prevent them? Mm-hmm. And, and probably we, we can get to it later. The main one we're interested in now is what we call peripheral neuropathy. A lot of chemotherapy drugs, taxane drugs, which are widely used in breast cancer, among the most effective drugs in breast cancer, both in early and late breast cancer, those drugs damage the little nerves that go to our fingers, toes, and can cause numbness, tingling, pain, if it's very bad, it can affect your ability to walk, open mm. a can of a, a, a jar of ketchup, can have a profound thing. And it affects a lot of people. And, and certainly for certain occupations, it can be terrible, like if you're a violinist or you seamstress. Um, and so we, 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 we've actually, through BCRF help, been able to show we can predict this pretty accurately. And we've actually got a, a National Institutes of Health funded study now to verify it. And um, so we're excited as a predictive factor. And then we're also looking to see if we can predict other chronic disease as you age, like what's your risk of heart disease or diabetes? That's trickier because we take care of cancer patients and they get out five or 10 years, we discharge them to their family doctors. But we may need to think about following these people much longer over the years to see if there are problems. And if there are, could our research have predicted who will get them? Studying this gene uh, may open a lot of opportunity to do different things for different people, prevent side effects in the short run by identifying people at high risk and using an intervention that may be helpful. And then in the long run, by who's going to get other serious, other diseases of aging. And that's very important because most women with breast cancer today, fortunately, are cured of their treatment, but we're treating them very aggressively. And if they get chemotherapy and and, and perhaps lots of, they need large amounts of radiation, et cetera, that may have adverse effects down the road. And so we're very interested in learning more about that. On this point of studying chemotherapy and the effects, you helped publish in 2009, I think it was, in the New England Journal of Medicine, the results of the first chemotherapy trial in older patients with early stage breast cancer. Now, earlier in this conversation, you discussed how you were at the very beginning stages of geriatric oncology, and that predated this 2009 study. But I was shocked that it took until 2009 before somebody thought to do a chemotherapy trial on older patients with early stage breast cancer? Yeah, well, it's a, you know, our field is very new. There's a, you know, I don't know if there's a hundred geriatric oncologists in the United States now, Wow. but in the early days of clinical trials, older people's were frequently excluded. It was a paternalistic approach, which should have never happened, but it did. It was ageism and people didn't appreciate the demographics. So there were virtually no trials focused on older people. And a lot of the data that we used were done on younger people, people in their 40s, 50s, maybe early 60s. And so their tolerance of chemotherapy may not have been representative of older people, 
fortunately, with the support of my colleagues, Larry Norton, Cliff Hudess, Eric Weiner, great people, the Alliance, uh, Rich Shilsky, they're really terrific people. We wrote this study and we published it in 2009, but we started the study in 2000. Wow. It was nothing then. <laughs> and we had to convince the NCI, which were very gracious, good people, that it was worth doing. Because if you looked at clinical trials, even if they didn't have an upper age, they were like two people, 70. And docs wanted to know if I give Mary Smith, who's 76, chemotherapy, is it going to be a, you know, an overwhelming problem for her? So we, we did this study. It was a national study. It took us a long time to accrue. And we found out that there was a group of women. In retrospect, they're probably women who had triple negative breast cancer who were older who derived the greatest benefit. At that time, we didn't know a lot about triple negative breast cancer, but uh, in retrospect, that's probably what we showed. There certainly may have been some patients with hormone receptor positive. There certainly are who derive benefit from chemotherapy, but um, that was the first seminal study and they were all over 65 and we had great support nationally and we were very proud of it. And in fact, at the recent ASCO meetings a few days ago, is one of the few other studies. Most studies in this area, a lot were started. They weren't completed. It was hard to randomize people. We had to randomize women to a chemotherapy oral form, a single pill versus IV chemotherapy. So those women were incredible to agree to this. And a lot of other people have tried this and not been as successful, but kudos to our French colleagues, Dr. Etienne Brown and his group, for just at ASCO now, publishing a very large study and, and kind of showing, sadly, that at least using the technology they did to select patients, the chemotherapy had little to no benefit mm. when added to the endocrine therapy, to the hormonal-like therapy, tamoxifen, aroma to in, in older patients. Not a, a very good study. There'll be a lot of discussion. It doesn't mean there's no benefit for chemotherapy as a blanket statement. In, in that group of people. But in our study, we included other people. So it was a little different, but it was terrific. And even now, as we speak worldwide, we don't have more than a handful of studies focused on older people. There is There are some in leukemia, where we know the biology is a lot different in older people than younger, but in breast cancer, colorectal cancer, lung cancers, we just don't have as much, but people are coming around. The FDA is pushing pharma to include older patients and encourage them on trials. The National Cancer Institute has been wonderful and NI, National Institute of Aging, but it's still been very, very hard to do to get these older people on trials. So we're proud of the trial, but um, we, you know, we like to see many more of them, but it's been difficult. And that's what I was going to ask you. What would you really like to know next? Well, it's a, I think it's several things. I think from the tumor biology point of view, um, we're, we're, we're learning a lot from people of all, all ages, but uh, our interest in, you know, one of my interests is going to be, are these biomarkers of aging? There's a lot mm. of interest in what we call bio clocks as we get, as we age, our little methyl groups, little almost like hydrocarbon groups go onto our DNA and change the way it works and adds to 
our aging processes and developing other areas. There's a lot of interest in that. I think that's a little bit different. That's going to be focused on can we predict how certain people will do with certain treatments or without treatment. But I think one of the challenges now is there's such an explosion of new drugs that affect the immune system, all the new immune inhibitors, and all the new exciting biologic agents. There was some wonderful news for breast cancer patients from this year's ASCO on drugs that attack the HER2 gene, even if it's not our standard definition. Very exciting and wonderful work by Dr. Modi and her colleagues. Then the question is, do we know about older people? Is the is an 80-year-old person going to do as well? And so what I'd like to see, and the National Clinical Trials Network, the NCOR people, have given support to the large groups to do studies of these drugs, specifically in older patients. And it's not to repeat the response rate, although that's important, because I, I, I think it's going to be pretty similar. It's to look if the toxicity profiles are different. So we can make sure that older people on this, what appears to be terrific new drug, trastuzumab, deroxycan, do older people get more of these lung side effects than younger? You know, and you might have a trial with a thousand patients in it, but when you parse it out and you get people over 75 and 80, you end up with a handful of people. And it's not good enough to really get a good idea of the confidence you can have in the risk of these side effects. So I think a lot of the research is going to have to focus on older people who still don't get on these trials and very little headway, very little headway in getting more older people on NCI trials. Look at the pharma daddy. The FDA has done a beautiful job trying to push to do it, but, you know, it's difficult to do it because, you know, pharma has developed some great drugs, but no CEO wants to go in on Monday said, I put a lot of older people on the drug and they didn't do too well. No, no, sure not going to do too well on the Dow that day. So I think (laughs) that, um, I I think we're going to have to do them and they're very important. And we're going to have to take the best treatments, not just in breast, Hmm. but in all the cancers and really focus in on older people. And in breast, a lot of these treatments that we're doing today, adding these cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors to preventive therapy, adjuvant therapy, you know, drugs that have not just monetary costs, but a lot of potential side effects, very little is known about the older patients. And I think we need to focus on carving out trials specifically for those older people so we can, when they come into our office and say, you know, Dr. Moss, you know, I'm, I'm 78, I'm a little shaky on my feet. Is this drug going to have really bad side effects in me that I'll be able to look that person in the eye and say, you know, we've studied a group of people like you and here's what we found. Yeah, it was a little worse, but it may be worth trying it or not a good idea. Yes. And I think that that's what we need to be focusing on. What a call to action and complicated call to action to generate studies on geriatrics. And you've outlined some of the issues. I can only imagine how complicated it is from companies to agencies to support it to the patients themselves who may be tired or, you know, and have other things going on and may not feel like participating in a study at 75 or 80 years old is kind of what they should be doing. And I can almost imagine an argument of how 
meaningful participation in such work could be? Absolutely. You know, we did a study in the the old CLGB group. It was one of the first studies we did in geriatrics. And we looked at institutions that were part of the group. And we looked at what trials they had available in their institutions. And these were top quality academic centers. I'm not going to name them to prevent the, you know, including myself. (laughs) But when we looked, all these patients were eligible for a clinical trial. But when we looked how many patients were offered it by age, we found out that if you were less than 65, about half the patients were offered it. That's bad enough because it meant that people were too busy or didn't think of it or whatever. But when when you looked at people 65 and older, it was only 25, 30%. Wow. So there was an intrinsic ageism because all these patients, we went and individual were eligible. And then we said... If you offered the patient the trial, how many accepted? And it was the same for older and younger people. It was about half. So if you spent the time discussing the trial with the older patient, they were as likely to participate as the younger patient. Now, there's a bias in there. You didn't, you know, we didn't offer it to all the, but those that we did, and there's been other work like this, and it's very, very important. It takes longer to explain things to older people. In this country, older people tend not to have the education of younger people, Hmm. although we're so numerically illiterate in this, you know, uh, as a as a culture. I'm not sure that all matters, but explaining it, you know, people are scared of placebos and it takes time to do it. And of course, with older people, you've got to get their caregiver or family. They got to be part of the team. You, everybody's got to be in sync and understand about it. And so we're working on it, but it's not like in the United States, we're getting more and more funds to screen older people and do things. I'd love to see it, but um, it's going to, it's going to take a while. We need a few more Claude Peppers and, you know, yes, I know. Chairman okay, with power I remember. To put a lot of money in aging research, but it's a challenge and it's a challenge for all the doctors and nurses and research associates trying to get these patients on trial, irrespective of the type of cancer. Takes a lot of work, a lot of logistics, caregivers got to be involved, but we're not going to give up. Understood. And and quickly to to finish out, how would you characterize what what role has BCRF played in your research? Well, BCRF has really been instrumental. I, I, I don't think we wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for BCRF. I've had the continued good fortune of being funded of knowing the lovely, elegant, amazing Evelyn Lauder and working with Larry Norton and other people who uh, built this from the ground up. This organization's uh, philosophy has been to support investigators who have done some things, but give them money to do new and exciting things. And I think our research and looking at how the biology of aging affects cancer care in older women with breast cancer and we've looked at side effects and patient-reported outcomes, et cetera, I could never have done it without the BCRF. And it has led to some lovely funded NIH grants. I've had the opportunity of working with Ned Sharpless, our prior director, who's really taught me the biology of aging. But without the BCRF providing those hard dollars to do these studies, because they're they're not like drug A and we're going to get a new drug that's going to cure everybody. They're much more translationally based from the lab to the clinic 
then learn about patients and bring it back to the lab. Couldn't do it without BCRF. And so they've enabled us to do this, to look at new little nuances with continued funding to build on these studies. And I think in our case, we've been able to get federal and other grants to actually leverage their wonderful support, but it it wouldn't be possible. Wouldn't be possible. Dr. Musk, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for what you do with patients, both those that are your patients and those who are not every day. Well, it's my pleasure to have been here to discuss this. Thanks for asking me. And as always, I appreciate the BCRF support and interest in what we're doing. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Dr. Hai Moss. My thanks to Dr. Moss for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.